Schlock Audio Tales. Brought to you by BunnySlippers.com. Check out their brand new Dino Sound Slippers. Slippers make a roaring sound every three steps. Made with green scaly fabric, soft plush uppers, foam footbeds, non-slip grips on soles, and three white claws on each foot. One size fits most up to women's ten and a half, men's nine. Footbed measures ten and a half. Black Clock Audio Tales is a daily podcast that reads a story, either a chapter of a novel or a whole short story. Join us in our exploration of old ghost stories, supernatural fiction, horror tales, folk tales, fantasy, gothic horror, weird fiction, and cosmic horror. And don't forget to join us for our monthly show about the Cthulhu Mythos. Look for our podcast near the old wishing well in the Blasted Heath, wherever you find your podcasts. We suggest Podbean or Apple Podcasts. Find us on the web at pgttcm.com and at Black Clock Audio on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and Black Clock Audio Tales on YouTube. Welcome to Black Clock Audio Tales. Check out our new website over at www.pgttcm.com. Edited by Daniel Spitzer. Music by Kevin McLeod. The Chamber, Oppressive Gloom, Despair. Welcome to Part 1, Folklore of Great Britain. Join us at the end of the month when we talk about the Great Old Ones. Chapter 1 of Welsh Fairy Tales. Recording by Charlotte Duckett. Welsh Fairy Tales by William Elliot Griffiths. Chapter 1. Welsh Rabbits and Hunted Hares. Long ago, there was a good saint named David, who taught the early Cymric or Welsh people better manners, and many good things to eat and ways to enjoy themselves. Now the Welsh folks, in speaking of their good teacher, pronounced his name Taffid, or affectionately Taffy, and this came to be the usual name for a person born in Wales. In our nurseries we learned that Taffy was a Welshman, but it was our enemies who made a bad rhyme about Taffy. Whenever there were cows or goats, people could get milk, so they always had what was necessary for a good meal, whether it was breakfast, lunch or supper. Milk, cream, curds, whey and cheese enriched the family table. Were not these enough? But Saint David taught the people how to make still more delicious foods out of cheese, and this could be done without taking the life of any creature. Saint David showed girls how to make cheese, slice and toast it over coals, or melt it in a skillet and pour it over hot toast or biscuits. This gave the cheese a new and sweeter flavour. When spread on bread, either plain or browned over the fire, the result, in combination, was a delicacy fit for a king, and equal to anything known. The fame of this new addition to the British Bill of Fare spread near and far. English people who had always been fond of rabbit pie, and still thousands of molly cottontails every day, named it Welsh Rabbit, and thought it was one of the best things to eat. In fact, there are many people who do not easily see a joke, who misunderstand the fun, or who suppose the name is either slang, vulgar, or a mistake, and who call it Rabbit. It is like Cape Cod Turkey, codfish or Bombay Ducks, dried fruit, or Irish plums, potato, and such funny cookery with fancy names. Now up to this time, the rabbits and hares had been so hunted, with the aid of dogs, that there was hardly any chance of them surviving the cruel slaughter. In the year 1604, the Prince of Powys went out hunting. The dogs started a hare and pursued him into a dense thicket. When the hunter with the horns came up, 
a strange sight met his eyes. There he saw a lovely maiden. She was kneeling on the ground and devoutly praying. Though surprised at this, the prince was anxious to secure his game. He hissed on the hounds and ordered the horn to be blown, for the dogs to charge on their prey, expecting them to bring him game at once. Instead of this, though they were trained dogs and would fight even a wolf, they slunk away howling and frightened as if in pain, while the horn stuck fast to the lips of the blower and he was silent. Meanwhile the hares nestled under the maiden's dress and seemed not the least disturbed. Amazed at this, the prince turned to the fair lady and asked, Who are you? She answered, My mother named me Monacella. I was fled from Ireland, where my father wished me to marry one of his chief men, whom I did not love. Under God's guidance, I came to this secret desert place, where I have lived fifteen years without seeing the face of a man. To this, the prince in admiration replied, O oh, most worthy Merengesh, which is the way that the Welsh pronounce Monacella, because on account of thy merits, it has pleased God to shelter and save this little wild hare. I, on my part, here present thee with this land, to be for the service of God and an asylum for all men and women who seek thy protection. So long as they do not pollute this sanctuary, let none, not even prince or chieftain, drag them forth. The beautiful saint passed the rest of her life in this place. At night she slept on bare rock. Many were the wonders wrought for those who with pure hearts sought refuge. The little wild hares were under her special protection, and they are still called Melangesh Slams. Recording by James Lapine. Welsh Fairy Tales. Chapter 2 The Mighty Monster, Afang. After the Cumric folk, that is, the people we call the Welsh, had come up from Cornwall into their new land, they began to cut down trees, to build farms, and to have fields and gardens. Soon they made the landscape smile with pleasant homes, rich farms, and playing children. They trained vines and made flowers grow. The young folks made pets of wild animals' cubs, which their fathers and big brothers brought home from hunting. Old men took rushes and reeds and wove them into cages for songbirds to live in. While they were draining the swamps and bogs, they drove out the monsters that had made their lair in these wet places. These terrible creatures liked the poison people with their bad breath and even ate up very little boys and girls when they strayed away from home. So all the face of the open country between the forests became very pretty to look at. The whole of the Cumbric land, which then extended from the northern Grampian Hills to Cornwall, and from the Irish Sea, past their big fort, afterward called London, even to the edge of the German Ocean, became a delightful place to live in. The lowlands and the rivers in which the tide rose and fell daily were especially attractive. This was chiefly because of the many bright flowers growing there, while the yellow gorse and the pink heather made the hills look as lovely as a young girl's face. Besides this, the comic maidens were the prettiest ever, and the lads were all brave and healthy, while both of these knew how to sing often and well. Now there was a great monster named Afang that lived in a big bog, hidden among the high hills and inside of a dark, rough forest. This ugly creature had an iron-clad back and a long tail that could wrap itself around a mountain. It had four front legs with big knees that were bent up like a grasshopper's, but were covered with scales like armor, 
These were as hard as steel and bulged out at the thighs. Along its back was a ridge of horns like spines and higher than an alligator's. Against such a tough hide, when the hunters shot their darts and hurled their javelins, these weapons fell down to the ground like harmless pins. On this monster's head were big ears, halfway between those of a jackass and an elephant. Its eyes were as green as leeks and were round but scalloped on the edges like squashes while they were big as pumpkins. The Aethang's face was much like a monkey's or gorilla's with long straggling gray hairs around its cheek like those of a walrus. It always looked as if a napkin as big as a bath towel would be necessary to keep its mouth clean. Yet even then it slobbered a good deal so that no nice fairy liked to be near the monster. When the Aethang growled, the bushes shook and the oak leaves trembled on the branches as if a strong wind was blowing. But after its dinner, when it had swallowed down a man, or two calves, or four sheep, or a fat heifer, or three goats, its body swelled up like a balloon. Then it usually rolled over, lay along the ground, or in the soft mud, and felt very stupid and sleepy for a long while. All around its lair lay wagon loads of bones of the creatures, girls, women, men, boys, cows, and occasionally a donkey which it had devoured. But when the Aethang was ravenously hungry and could not get these animals, and when fat girls and careless boys were scarce, it would live on birds, beasts, and fishes. Although it was very fond of cows and sheep, yet the wool and hair of these animals stuck in its big teeth. It often felt very miserable, and its usually bad temper grew worse. Then, like a beaver, it would cut down a tree, and sharpen it to a point, and pick its teeth until its mouth was clean. Yet it seemed all the more hungry and eager for fresh human victims to eat, especially juicy maidens, just as children like cake more than bread. The Cumberk man were not surprised at this, for they knew that girls were very sweet, and they almost worshipped women, so they learned to guard their daughters and wives. They saw that to do such things as eating up people was in the nature of the beast, which could never be taught good manners. But what made them mad beyond measure was the trick which the monster often played upon them by breaking the river banks and the dikes which with great toil they had built to protect their crops. Then the waters overflowed all their farms, ruined their gardens, and spoiled their cowhouses and stables. This sort of mischief the Aethang liked to play, especially about the time when the oat and barley crops were ripe and ready to be gathered to make cakes and flummery, that is sour oat jelly or pap. So it often happened that the children had to do without their cookies and porridge during the winter. Sometimes the floods rose so high as to wash away the houses and float the cradles. Even those with little babies in them were often seen on the raging waters and sent dancing on the waves down the river to the sea. Once in a while a mother cat and all her kittens were seen mewing for help, or a lady dog howling piteously. Often it happened that both puppies and kittens were drowned. So whether for men or mothers, pussies or puppies, the Cumberk man thought time had come to stop this monster's mischief. It was bad enough that people should be eaten up, but to have all their crops ruined and animals drowned, so they had to go hungry all winter, 
with only a little fried fish and no turnips, was too much for human patience. There were too many weeping mothers and sorrowful fathers and squalling brats and animals whining for something to eat. Besides, if all the oats were washed away, how could their wives make flummery, without which no cumbric man is ever happy? And where would they get seed for another year's sowing? And if there were no cows, how could the babies or kitties live? Or any grown-up person get buttermilk? Someone may ask, why did not some brave man shoot the Apang with a poison arrow, or drive a spear into him under the arms where the flesh was tender, or cut off his head with a sharp sword? The trouble was just there. There were plenty of brave fellows ready to fight the monster, but nothing made of iron could pierce that hide of his. This was like armor, or one of the steel battleships of our day, and the Afang always spit out fire or poison breath down the road up which a man was coming, long before the brave fellow could get near him. Nothing would do but go up into his lair and drag him out. But what man or company of men was strong enough to do this, when a dozen giants in a gang and ropes as thick as a ship's hawser could hardly tackle the job? Nevertheless, in what neither man nor giant could do, a pretty maiden might succeed. True, she must be brave also, for how could she know, but if hungry, that the Afang might eat her up? However, one valiant damsel of great beauty, who had lots of perfumery and plenty of pretty clothes, volunteered to bind the monster in his lair. She said, I'm not afraid. Her sweetheart was named Gadern, and he was a young and strong hunter. He talked over the matter with her, and they resolved to act together. Gadern went all over the country, summoning the farmers to bring their ox teams and log chains. Then he set the blacksmith to work, forging new and especially heavy ones, made out of the best native iron from the mines for which Wales is still famous. Meanwhile, the lovely maiden, arrayed in her prettiest clothes, dressed her hair in the most enticing way, hanging a white blossom on each side, over her ears, with one flower also at her neck. When she had perfumed her garments, she sallied forth up the lake where the big bog and the waters were, and where the monster hid himself. While the maiden was still quite a distance away, the terrible Afang, scenting his visitor from afar, came rushing out of his lair. When very near, he reared his head high in the air, expecting to pounce on her, with his iron-clad claws, and at one swallow make a breakfast of the girl. But the odors of her perfumes were so sweet that he forgot what he had thought to do. Moreover, when he looked at her, he was so taken with unusual beauty that he flopped at once on his forefeet. Then he behaved just like a lovelorn beau. When his best girl comes near, he ties his necktie and pulls down his coat and brushes off the collar. So the Afang began to spruce up. It was real fun to see how a monster behaves when smitten with love for a pretty girl. He had no idea how funny he was. The girl was not at all afraid, but smoothed the monster's back, stroked and played with its big mustaches, and tickled its neck until the Afang's throat actually gurgled with a laugh. Pretty soon he guffawed, for he was so delighted. When he did this, the people down the valley thought it was thunder, though the sky was clear and blue.
The maiden tickled his chin and even put his whiskers in curl papers. Then she stroked his neck so that his eyes closed. Soon she had gently lulled him to slumber by singing a cradle song which her mother had taught her. This she did so softly and sweetly that in a few minutes, with its head in her lap, the monster was sound asleep and even began to snore. Then quietly, from their hiding places in the bushes, Gadurn and his men crawled out. When near the dreaded Afang, they stood up and sneaked forward, very softly on tippy-toe. They had wrapped the links of chain in grass and leaves, so that no clanking was heard. They also had the oxen yokes, so that nobody or anything could rattle or make any noise. Slowly but surely, they passed a chain over its body, in the middle, besides binding the brute securely between its fore and hind legs. All this time the monster slept on, for the girl kept crooning her melody. When the forty yoke of oxen were all harnessed together, the drovers cracked all their whips at once, so that it sounded like a clap of thunder, and the whole team began to pull together. Then the Afang woke up with a start. The sudden jerk roused the monster to wrath. Its bellowing was terrible. It rolled round and round, and dug its four set of toes, each with three claws, every one as big as a plowshare, into the ground. It tried hard to crawl into its lair, or slip into the lake. Finding that neither was possible, the Afang looked about for some big tree to wrap its tail around. But all its writhings or plungings were of no use. The drovers plied their whips, and the oxen kept on with one long pull, together and forward. They strained so hard that one of them dropped its eye out. This formed a pool, and to this day they call it the Pool of the Ox's Eye. It never dries up or overflows, though the water in it rises and falls as regularly as the tides. For miles over the mountains the sturdy oxen hauled the monster. The pass over which they toiled and strained so hard is still named the Pass of the Oxen's Slope. When going downhill, the work of dragging the Afang was easier. In a great hole in the ground, big enough to be a pond, they dumped the carcass of the Afang, and soon a little lake was formed. This uncanny bit of water is called the Lake of the Green Well. It is considered dangerous for men or beasts to go too near it. Birds do not like to fly over the surface, and when sheep tumble in, they sink to the bottom at once. If the bones of the Afang still lie at the bottom, they must have sunk down very deep, for the monster had no more power to get out or to break the river banks. The farmers no longer cared anything about the creature, and they oddly ever think of the old story, except when a sheep is lost. As for Gadurn and his brave and lovely sweetheart, they were married and lived long and happily. Their descendants, in the 37th generation, are proud of the grand exploit of their ancestors, while all the farmers honor his memory and bless the name of the lovely girl that put the monster asleep. Chapter 3 of Walt Chapter 3 The Two Cat Witches In the old days, it was believed that the seventh son in a family of sons was a conjurer by nature. That is, he could work wonders like the fairies and excelled doctors in curing diseases. 
If he were the seventh son of a seventh son, he was himself a wonder of wonders. The story ran that he could even cure the shingles, which was a very troublesome disease. It is called also by a Latin name, which means a snake, because as it gets worse, it coils itself around the body. Now the eagle can attack the serpent and conquer and kill this poisonous creature. To secure such power, you, the conjurer, ate the flesh of eagles. When he wished to cure the serpent disease, he uttered the words in the form of a charm, which acted as a talisman and a cure. After wetting the red rash which had broken out over the sick person's body, he muttered, He eagle, she eagle, I send you over the nine seas, and over nine mountains, and over nine acres of moor and fen, where no dog shall bark, no cow low, and no eagle shall higher rise. After that, the patient was sure that he felt better. There was always great rivalry between these conjurers and those who made money from the pilgrims at holy wells and visitors to relic shrines. But this fellow, named Yu, and the monks kept on mutually good terms. They often ate dinner together, for Yu was a great traveler over the whole country and always had news to tell to the holy brothers who lived in the cells. One night, as he was eating supper at the inn, four men came in and sat down at the table with him. By his magical power, Yu knew they were robbers and meant to kill him that night in order to get his money. So, to divert their attention, Yu made something like a horn grow up out of the table and then laid a spell on the robbers. So they kept gazing at the curious thing all night long while he went to bed and slept soundly. When he rose in the morning, he paid his bill and went on his way, while the robbers were still gazing at the horn. Only when the officers arrived to take him to prison did they come to themselves. Now at Betis Sequoid, that place which has a name that sounds so funny to us Americans, and suggests a girl named Betty the Coed at college, there was a hotel named the Inn of Three Kegs. The shop sign hung out in front. It was a bunch of grapes gilded and set below three small barrels. The inn was kept by two respectable ladies, who were sisters. Yet in that very hotel, several travelers, while they were asleep, had been robbed of their money. They could not blame anyone, nor tell how the mischief was done. With a key in the keyhole, they had kept their doors locked during the night. They were sure no one had entered the room. There were no sign of men's boots, or anyone's footsteps in the garden. Well, nothing was visible on the lock or door to show that either had been tampered with. Everything was in order as when they went to bed. Some people doubted their stories, but when they applied to you the conjurer, he believed them and volunteered to solve the mystery. His motto was, go anywhere and everywhere, but catch the thief. When you applied one night for lodging at the inn, nothing could be more agreeable than the welcome and fine manners of his two hostesses. At supper time and during the evening, they all chatted together merrily. You, who was never at a loss for news or stories, told about the various kinds of people and the many countries he had visited in imagination, just as he had seen them all, although he had never set foot outside of Wales. When he was ready to go to bed, he said to the ladies, 
It is my custom to keep a light burning in my room, all night. But I will not ask for candles, for I have enough to last me until sunrise. So saying, he bade them good night. Entering his room and locking the door, he undressed, but laid his clothes near at hand. He drew his trusty sword out of its sheath and laid it upon the bed beside him, where he could quickly grasp it. Then he pretended to be asleep and even snored. It was not long before, peeping between his eyelids, only half closed, he saw two cats come stealthily down the chimney. When in the room, the animals frisked about and then gimboled and romped in the most lively way. They then chased each other around the bed, as if they were trying to find out whether you was asleep. Meanwhile, the supposed sleeper kept perfectly motionless. Soon the two cats came over to his clothes, and one of them put her paw in the pocket that contained his purse. At this, with one sweep of his sword, you struck at the cat's paw. The beast howled frightfully, and both animals ran for the chimney and disappeared. After that, everything was quiet until breakfast time. At the table, only one of the sisters was present. You politely inquired after the other one. He was told that she was not well, for which you said he was very sorry. After the meal, you declared he must say goodbye to both the sisters, whose company he had so enjoyed the night before. In spite of the other lady's many excuses, he was admitted to the sick lady's room. After polite greetings and mutual compliments, you offered his hand to say goodbye. But the sick lady smiled at once and put out her hand, but it was her left one. Oh no, said you, with a laugh. I never in all my life have taken anyone's left hand. And, as beautiful as yours is, I won't break my habit beginning now and here. Reluctantly, as if in pain, the sick lady put out her hand. It was bandaged. The mystery was now cleared up. The two sisters were cats. By the help of bad fairies they had changed their forms, and were the real robbers. You seized the hand of the other sister, and made a little cut in it, from which a few drops of blood flowed, but the spell was over. Henceforth, said you, you are both harmless, and I trust you will be both honest women. And they were. From that day they were like other women and kept one of the best of those inns, clean, tidy, comfortable, and at moderate prices, for which Wales is or was noted, neither as cats with paws, nor landladies with soaring bills, did they ever rob travelers again. End of chapter. This recording is in the public domain.